0: Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome you to this third uh, sermon in the series, uh, Discover Life. And today we're talking about discovering meaningful work. And if you're new here, uh, the person that invited you here just leaned over to you and said, that's not our pastor. Um, and that's, that's true. Um, I am his son, so... Uh, he, uh, he actually is at, uh, at the church that I pastor up in Vaughan this morning, and as I said to my church last week, next week you get the slightly more gray, much more wise version of me, So, which means you're stuck with me, I guess. I actually, this is, this is coming home for me, this place. Um, I, I grew up, really, that was my first home, just across the street. My second home was this. Uh, for a number of years, we moved into that house when I was four, and, um, and about five years ago, had an opportunity with a group of people from this church to go and start a new church in the city of Vaughan, uh, just a little bit up the 400. And that's been an amazing experience for me, my family, for the people there. And about a year and a half uh, ago, I had the opportunity to leave my, my career and, and actually start a new one as the pastor uh, of that church. So, um, so it's kind of a new thing for me. Uh, but this subject of work, and finding meaning in it is something, you know, I sort of laugh, as you do, with Sean, I think there's anecdotes like that everywhere around us. And so when I speak to you today about finding meaning in work, I feel probably much more like I'm coming from your perspective in the sense that uh, I've only been a pastor for about a year and a half, for a little over a decade I worked in the business community in this city, and so my context really is, is coming from there, and I understand that, that, uh, that journey to find meaning in our work. And really, the more that I have uh, journeyed my life as a Christian, uh, the more I have understood and, and experienced, and I guess been amazed by how far-reaching the life of Christ is into my life, like how far His life reaches into every area of my life. And really, that's what I'm going to share with you a little bit today is the, is the hope, the meaning that I have discovered in Christ when it comes to work. And work is really probably the most pervasive, I guess I've listened to the last two sermons that that you've had here over the last two weeks. Work is probably the most pervasive subject in that um, we all do something with our days on the earth. And when I say the word work, I want you to think of it as whatever it is that you do most days, whether or not you get paid for it, whether or not it's an official job title, what is it that you do on the earth? And in that sense, it affects us all. It's not only pervasive, it's something that's cursed. And Sean sort of shared a little bit of a story about that. And that's not something that we should be surprised by. If you read the opening chapters of the Bible, it starts with the story of God creating the earth and setting it into place. And in that process, the human beings that he created chose to be independent of him. And as a result, sin came into the world. And the word sin, I know it's kind of, for some of us, just sort of, we have that reaction to it. The word's been sort of wrecked, I think, by a lot of the culture of Christianity over the last many years. Sin means, it doesn't simply mean, it means to fall short, to totally miss. And in that sense, when sin came into the world, everything that was supposed to be a certain way began to miss its purpose and miss its mark. And to fall short of what it was meant to be. Creation. Human beings and everything that we would touch. And specifically, actually, if you look at Genesis 3, God talks to Adam and Eve about work. See, Adam was a farmer and he had been given the land basically to, to watch over. And God said, Because of sin, the ground's going to be hard for you and it's going to produce thorns and thistles, which is just two pictures for a farmer. Like, that's the worst thing you could hear. The ground's going to be hard and whatever grows out of it is actually going to choke the life out of things that you need to grow out of it. And so, from the very beginning, we realize work that God had given man and woman to do, was, was cursed from the beginning. And I, if you think about it, we see the effects of however many thousands of years later that was, so now whether you believe in an old earth or a new earth or whatever, here we are, and work still seems to be cursed. It's pervasive. We know that experientially, whether or not we've ever read it in Genesis 3. And I think it's cursed in two ways. And, and we seem to be sort of in two camps about these things, and maybe not only in each of those camps, but somewhere in this spectrum. The one side of this curse is, that it is the work to live curse, where in this camp, work is the enemy. It's the, the four-letter word in the truest sense of it. You know, and the music of our culture plays into that. Everybody's working for the weekend, and take this job, and you know what? I'm not working here anymore. And the commercials that I mean, the work environment seems to be the easiest place to parody in commercials and, and five seasons worth of The Office, or six seasons, or whatever it is. Where, and we laugh and we cry, because it's true of all of our working environment in some way or another. And even in my home, you know, I, I love my job, which is a great thing, but my kids, I, without fail, almost every day, no, Daddy, don't go to work. Right, Noah? Yeah. <laughs> they don't want me to leave. Work is sort of an enemy to them. It's, it's taking me away from them. And, uh, but we have to do it. And we live in this city, which is, which is not an inexpensive city. And so for many of us, you'd say, yeah, I just I work because i got to do it. need to pay the bills. The 2007 survey of Americans, they, they have the time and the money, I guess, to do surveys more than we do. But uh, I, I don't think that the findings are irrelevant to us. So that more than one in two find their job, uh, like don't like their job. More than one in two. Which was up from one in three 20 years before. So not only is work cursed, but more people are finding it to be that way. And that's a staggering number, one out of every two. One of the side effects of this is that we worship leisure. Vacations are the glimpse of it, and retirement is the nirvana, held up to be what we're all after. Leisure, because play, because work is such a drudgery, play becomes the, the thing that we seek after. It's a byproduct of the fact that we don't like to work. And this is strange and it's damaging. The strange part is this. Ben Patterson, a pastor, wrote a book called Serving God. And he said this. How odd that we should spend all of our lives doing something so we don't have to do it anymore. That's strange. When we think about the amount of time that we spend working, if the main goal is to stop doing it, something's off. The damaging part is this. If you think that you work from roughly from the age of 20 to 65, that's 45 years. If you live to 90, which the statistics say most of us won't, that's more than half your life. So just on years alone, that's a large amount of time to be spending doing something you don't like. And secondly, it's what we call the prime of our lives, the best of our years. To be unsatisfied or even to hate what one does in that period of time is a really damaging thing. It has effects on the other parts of our lives on our relationships, on our bodies, on our emotions, our spirit. It's a gross mortgaging of the present time for someday, one day. And the someday, one day is uncertain. We don't know what physical condition we'll be in at the supposed retirement age to enjoy that. And if the last two years have told us anything, we don't know what shape the market or our investments, our supposedly secure blue chip kind of strategy will be in to actually how much of there will be to enjoy. So it's uncertain and it seems that's damaging. That's the one side. Are you depressed yet? (laughs) The other side of it is the live-to-work. For these who are in the live-to-work camp, work is not the enemy, it's the lover that has seduced us into an obsession where everything else has taken a backseat. It progressively has taken more and more of us and we lose ourselves in it. Now, this most often happens when, if if we're privileged, to find a job that we love to do that leverages the best of who we are and that we get paid decently for. I mean, who doesn't want that? That's a good thing. But in that environment, it can begin to woo us into a place where it becomes everything. And it, it often it'll be the place where we get the most affirmation, where we feel useful, productive, where people want us, we're desired, our time, our efforts, we get thanked. And unfortunately, if one's personal life is in a bit of hardship, if home isn't the place where we're getting that kind of affirmation, where we're feeling productive and useful, then it's so easy to just throw our whole selves into the workplace. And we live to work. And in fact, this can perpetuate the failure in other parts of our lives. And live to work stems from one of the greatest distortions of our culture. Maybe it's always been like this. I don't know, but certainly in this culture, that doing or being has been replaced by Doing it's the cocktail party thing, right? If you go to a cocktail party or whatever it is that you go to and you don't know somebody, nobody asks you, who are you? They ask, what do you do? And even if they asked you, who are you, probably you would start to answer in, what I do. Because what we do has become who we are. And it's hard not to be. It's what we do for a lot of the hours of the week. It's where we get our identity for better or for worse. We myopically evaluate ourselves based on our work. And when it's good, we're good. And when it's bad, we hate ourselves. We don't want to talk about it. We shy away from the question. We hope nobody asks us what we do. And for anyone of you that have lost a job, I know I I, I lost after I was working for five years and I finally decided to make a jump to another company. And three months later, I was walked out the door, stunned, And you can rationalize it whatever way you want, downsizing and this and that, position, blah, 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 education. At the end of the day, something inside you violently reacts because you were rejected. At the end of the day, you didn't cut it because it's you. It's who you are. It has become so germane to your very existence that it feels like the rejection of the person. And it rocks us to the very core. In my working life, I feel like I probably moved between those extremes. And as I said, I don't think any one extreme would describe us on any given day, or maybe it does. But we find ourselves somewhere within there, depending on the job, depending where we are in our career. But friends, this is the transforming truth for me, is that Christ came into the world to set us free from sin. To change the fact that things are not the way they were supposed to be. In fact, to begin to make things the way they were supposed to be. And so when we say, oh yeah, Jesus saved me, it's not just heaven someday. He meant to begin to change every part of your life that is not the way it's supposed to be, to begin to bring it into what it was supposed to be. That is good news. If you will, he has begun to reverse the curse in our lives. And for me, I just want to talk today about three truths from Scripture. Now, if you're you're not a Christian or you don't really believe in the Bible, there may be other good principles and truths out there to help this. These are the things that I know that have made the most meaning to me. So take them for what it's worth. The first is this. We were created to work and find joy in it. Work itself, per se, is not a curse word. And so I want you to just sort of shell that for the rest of today. When I say the word, don't have a sort of a bad reaction to it or, a, a, you know, whatever. It wasn't meant to be the way that we see it. And if you look, actually, I talked about Genesis 3 when sin came into the world. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it actually describes what life was like before sin came into the world. And the first thing you find in Genesis 1 is God at work. I'll paraphrase it for you. On Monday morning, God hit the snooze button too many times, and he didn't have enough time to eat because he was late, but he thought, i got to stop at Timmy's anyway, he raced through traffic, sat down at his desk, opened his mail, read all the personal ones first. Ended the end of Friday, one hour to go, looked at his watch, checked Facebook, played solitaire, checked the weather, time to go, God, the weekend warrior. That's not what you find in Genesis 1. Some of you are thinking, I did to read that. <laughs> Genesis 1, we see God at work. Throw away statements like, He made the stars. There He is, like bringing the entire universe into order out of nothing. Everything that you see around you, everything that the BBC tried their hardest to get onto those amazing HD, Blu ray, you know. Things, all of that God was bringing into existence that's God's work and after everything he said that's good that's good and it's not like just he was sort of grading it it's almost like the reaction we have when we're in the middle of doing something that we do well and it goes well and we think man that was good that's the picture I see of God in Genesis 1 creating the world at work in action first then he rested this is what we find and so then we shouldn't be surprised when he actually puts human beings on the earth what he calls them into is his reality, work, and rest. Genesis 1, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here we see God giving human beings two tasks. The same things he had just done in the earlier part of the book. Fill the earth and rule over it. Now we think of this be fruitful and multiply thing as in procreating, but it's a a bigger thing than that. God was talking about doing, and it says the earth was shapeless and empty, and God filled it and ruled over it. And he says to human beings, I'm putting you on the earth and I'm giving you the same two tasks. Fill, create into this space and rule over it. Not all of us have children, but every one of us creates. And fills. And this, these were God given things. Sin was nowhere on the map as yet. This was how it was supposed to be. God wanted human beings to have the same enjoyment out of it, and He gave them that mandate and said, You're going to love this. It's all yours. Fill it, create into it, rule over it. And so we see that work is not an enemy, a necessary evil, but rather a godlike task that is at the very core of your and my purpose as human beings on the earth. Our work is deeply connected to our purpose. And in fact, if we live in this space where we don't understand the purpose of what we're doing, something inside of us is ripped apart. And Jesus means to put it back together. The Bible says elsewhere that God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Have you ever thought about that? That is a stunning thing. Every one of us, God, before we were born, has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And the good works, when I say that, I think of God saying, that was good, that was good. Works that we would engage in and get that kind of pleasure out of God, ordained ahead of time for us to do. Every one of us. And so to worship retirement is to miss the point. And actually, physiologically, we know our minds and bodies were meant to be engaged in something meaningful. And what a lot of people unfortunately find is the golf that they thought they could play endlessly and the beaches they thought they could walk for miles, they find even their bodies and minds atrophying because it just doesn't deliver what they thought. Because it's missing the point. We were meant to engage in something that says, oh, this is good. So that's the first thing. We were created to find work and enjoy it. The second thing is this. The God who created us to work also worked in our shoes. see, Genesis 1, and and really the Old Testament, just as an aside, is a picture of God, but it is an incomplete picture. Jesus came to complete the picture. To show us who God is. And so C.S. Lewis, the, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, and perhaps one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, wrote this. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, that is God becoming man. Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. <clears throat> Excuse me It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. Incarnation, that God became a man and lived amongst us is this transforming miracle. And it's not just that he became a man. Think about how he became a man. He was born into a family, raised by his two parents, and took over the family business. His father was a carpenter. And he took over the business. Jesus worked as a tradesman. You know that song by Stix, Blue Collar Man? He was a blue collar man. You ever thought about that? That's what Jesus did. Isn't it strange that the incarnation, God coming to earth, wasn't like a king suddenly appearing on the horizon to liberate the Jewish people? Isn't it strange that he didn't just become a man and go to the cross? That was his ultimate purpose, right? To save us. But he was born. And for the first 30 years of his life, we know, like, really between the ages of 2 and 30, we know nothing except one little story. But we know that he probably followed the path of other Jewish boys. He took over the family business. Only other religions, some other religions, have this concept of God come, God's coming into the earth, the atmosphere. In the Eastern religions, they're avatars, but they're coming in as, as gods with superpowers and all of that kind of stuff. The Greek uh, mythology had that same thing, gods coming into human existence, but they were grown people. This is so unique, you'll not find this anywhere else in the world. God came to earth, not as an adult, but as a baby, and he grew up that way, which means he slugged it out like you and me. This is good news. It means he can identify with us with the idea of working hard at a job that perhaps seems to have nothing of any eternal significance to do with it. Do you ever think about that? That just blew me away. I was just reflecting on this just recently. Jesus, I think, probably would have experienced the vocational pain, thinking, I came to save the earth and I'm making tables and chairs. And we say, oh, Jesus didn't think that way. Really? He experienced physical pain. He experienced emotional pain. He was human. Did he not wonder when the time, maybe even if he knew the plan, it would have been even harder to say, God, how long am I going to sit here and do this stuff when all of the people, people are literally dying around me? And we don't, there doesn't seem to be any record of him doing any healings or anything like that. Otherwise, it would be in the gospel accounts. So he just slugged it out in anonymity. That's amazing. He knows what it feels like. We don't know anything about that part of his life, which by itself is so profound. It was so normal, nobody wrote anything about it. To the point that when people started to call him Messiah, all the people he grew up with started saying, What? We know his family. Isn't this Joseph's son? They pointed to the normal part of his life and said, How could that be? It was so anonymous, regular. This is amazing. Because when the scriptures say he's been tempted in every way or tried in every way, yes, without sin, it means this too. He, was, he faced the trial of a boring job or feeling like his talents were underutilized, that this wasn't bringing the best of him. The God who created you to work also worked in your shoes. <clears throat> I'm to clear my throat, but it wouldn't be a Christian sermon without a few throat clears, would it? <laughs> You know, having said all that, that we have hope for our working life on the earth. You could say, you're a skeptic, yeah, but what's the point, really? Like all of this is going to burn or someone's going to come along after me and be smarter and faster. Those of you that work in technology, you experience this every week. (laughs) What you did last week is obsolete. Someone could say, what's the point? I thought it's all going to burn anyway. Or I've even seen some of the stuff that I've worked so hard, it just slipped through my fingers. And I think, what's the point? Or perhaps closer to home, VJ. But I, you don't know the people I work with. It's a toxic environment. It's so bad. It's negative. Or m- my gifts and personalities and what? Nobody cares about that. It's not what's required of me, so I don't get to bring that out. Maybe I, you know, my wife has chosen to stay at home with our three young children. And I can tell you, the best of her, isn't required on a lot of those days. A lot of her talents, a lot of things she studied, whatever. What's required is slugging it out. Loving them physically. You know, our youngest is only five months, so there's a lot of physical involvement in it. And so if you're in that place, you might think, this isn't the best of me. Well, the Apostle Paul summed that up in these sentiments in this way. He said, if we only have hope in this life, we're to be pitied most. If we only have hope in this life, if, if this is all we have, what we see around us, Look, long after they pause to pause, most of the songwriters have put their finger on it. And the movie makers, really? This is all there is? We don't have much hope if that's the case. Because you know what? There's a great deal of things wrong with this life, and much of the vocational pain that you face may not get resolved in your lifetime in this job. You may never find the job that you feel really brings out the best of you. You may never get that thank you or recognition, that's all you want from the person that you work for. You may never feel like you get rewarded financially enough to make it work. It may not get resolved in this life. And so if our hope is in that alone, we are to be paid. But here's the most profound reason from the scriptures. That the Bible says that our work has inherent meaning. What we do now matters forever. The connection between what we do now and eternity is present in Scripture. And it is one of the most critical elements of Christian hope. Whether you're in the work-to-live camp or the live-to-work, there is a connection between what we do now and the life to come. The Bible isn't totally explicit, though, on what that looks like in the future. It does say a few things, though. A pretty profound thing that there is a strong connection between earth now and heaven later. And there are two things in the life of Jesus that I want to talk about: one thing he taught, and one thing he did. First is something he taught. Well, just as an aside, this is so critical for us to get right because I don't, you know, I was taught so well from the scriptures, as many of you have been sitting in this church over the years. But I, I think the culture of Christianity that I grew up in sold me so short on heaven. It painted such a poor picture of it that I didn't want to go. Like, I wanted to go, as in, but it was more like, well, I don't want to go anywhere else, so I'll go there. (laughs) Because it had no connection to what I could imagine the best of things were here. It was so disconnected from reality, which is why a lot of the other worldviews you see have tried to sort of paint a picture of virgins or whatever so that people can say, oh, I think I want to be there. We laugh, but, you know... That's not true, but it's connected to some reality that somebody can imagine and say, yeah, maybe I'd want to go there. Whereas for us in streets of gold and clouds and stuff like that, that, how do I connect? And so we ask questions like, will there be golf courses there? (laughs) I understand the question. Someone's just trying to understand, hey, is it going to be anything like this? Because there's a lot of things I enjoy. So why would I want to go? Well, here's, here's some hope for you. First thing Jesus taught, it's a story about... Uh, he he taught his disciples and a lot of times he told them parables or just stories just try to help them illustrate things which they didn't quite get but we should feel good then we don't understand the Bible and neither did Jesus closest friends so Jesus was talking to them about the end of days and if you read the last part of the book of Matthew which is the first book in the Bible it's a story about Jesus' life he's talking about what's going to happen near the end and he tells them this story he said it's like this a master had three servants and he gave them each a large amount of money he called them talents, but it was representative of something he had given them that they were supposed to do something with. Implicitly, he didn't say anything. He just said, "I'm leaving, and I'll be back." He comes back a little while later. The first two servants had invested what he had given them, and they had doubled. They had doubled the return, the investment. The third one didn't do anything. He buried it, and the third one was chastised and rebuked and cast away from the master. And the other two, you ever thought about what he said? I mean, you should read this if you never read it before. He says, "Well done." Enter into my joy. In other words, come into the next life and I'll give you even more than what I gave you. He gave them more of what he had already given them on earth and that was part of them coming into eternity with him. It was an increasing measure of what he had already given them on the earth. He offered not leisure, but more work. What eternity for them was like was directly connected with what had happened on earth. And what they did with it. What they were given to invest on earth, they were given more of in heaven. And the extent to which they leaned into it, to that extent it was multiplied in the future life. What does this mean for us? That your work is a dress rehearsal for a better day. Your work now is a dress rehearsal for a better day to come. Each of us has been entrusted with things. Time, abilities, giftings, money, relationships. If we stop long enough, we would think about it. Yeah, I'm unique. I'm, I'm different. I've been given this or that. They are a clue to our experience of God in eternity. And the extent of your enjoyment and experience in the next life is connected with what you do with what you have been given. Now, I don't know how this all works. It isn't spelled out for us, but that is clear. There's a connection. And if work, if God and human beings were at work before sin came into the world, then why wouldn't heaven, where sin is totally eradicated, be full of enjoyable work? Because where does the wisdom of the scientist or the Bay Street broker come from? Where does the creativity of the architect or the guy doing chalk drawings in front of the Eden Center come from? But from God. Where does the manual dexterity of the carpenter or the brain surgeon come from? The physical strength and coordination of the elite athlete. The people skills and emotional intelligence of the critical care nurse or the salesperson, it's all from God. It's part of the creation that he said, this is good. So why wouldn't that be present in the life to come? Now, for those of you that are in a job you hate, I just told you we're going to do more (laughs) of what you've been given in this life. And you're thinking, this sounds like the other place, not heaven. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the other half of the picture. So much more significant than what Jesus taught, which is what he did. It's the resurrection of the Son of God. What we celebrate on Easter Sunday. We celebrate actually every day. We should. What does the resurrection of Christ have to do with continuity between earth now and heaven later? I never understood this until, I can't remember how many years ago I heard my dad preach a sermon on it. It just changed the way I saw it Forever. Scripture tells us through the resurrection of Jesus that that which today is infected with sin, once it dies and is resurrected, will be free of sin. That which today falls short of its intended purpose when it is resurrected will be totally new. How do we know this? Because the tomb was empty. You say, I know that. No, no, the tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't raised as a spirit. The body was raised, too. And the body was raised. Look at the resurrection body of Christ. It was still him. They, had, they, had, they did a double tape because they had seen him die on the cross. But it was him. He had wounds still. They weren't bleeding anymore. They were scars. They were memories. They were reminders. But they weren't wounds. Like They were healed. He, it was so much so that he said, look, just give me a piece of fish. I'll eat it. I'll show you that I'm not a ghost. It was a physical resurrection as well. And, then, and yet he was totally different. He passed through doors. He appeared to them and he disappeared. Things that he didn't do before. There was something continuous about the resurrected body of Christ and yet something totally glorious, totally new. What does that mean for us? Well, it's a good thing the Apostle Paul wrote a whole bunch of letters to a bunch of churches like us trying to explain a lot of this. Because people were saying, well, what does that mean? What what does it mean we're going to be resurrected? And he says this in his letter to the Corinthian church. He's explaining to them what it means. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. This was an agrarian society mostly, and so Paul was using a seed and plant analogy. And he said, look, what you plant in the ground, it dies, but it's a seed of something that actually appears in the new plant when it comes out of the ground. There's continuity, but one dies, something else comes out. We will all die one day, just like Christ. But those of us who hope in Christ know that we not only die with him, as Paul says, we will also be resurrected with him. We will also be like him when he is raised. We won't be him, but we will be like him. As when you die, Paul uses these words: imper- uh, perishable, imperishable, imperishable, uh, dishonor, glory, weakness, power. When you die, you have no more strength, right? All of the strength is gone from your body. You have no more health. You have no more glory. The glory is of a living person, not of a dead person. Everything in this life has failed you at the moment that you die. And Paul says, that's what it is. It's like a seed. It goes to the ground in utter weakness, inglorious, and perishable, obviously. It's gone. But, look at Jesus. He also died in a very shameful, dishonoring way. He was stripped naked on the cross. His body was totally beaten, almost beyond recognition. He was laid in a borrowed grave, carried by people because all the life had gone from him. He died in dishonor, in weakness. He perished. But he was raised powerful, glorious, eternal. And so it is with you, he says. So imagine with me for a second your resurrected life taking these two things now, that what we have been given on this earth, we will be given more of. And, and the best of it on its best day is still weak and inglorious. Think about what will happen when we are raised with Him. And if you like it, if you love what you do, if you have found those things that you say, oh, this is good, even if it's not your full-time job, but you found that thing that that's your sweet spot, think about it on the best day that you do it. But you'll never get tired of it. There's never going to be a younger, smarter, faster person that will come on and surpass you. You'll never feel like, ah, I'm not as strong as I used to be. Everyone said that you'll feel it when you're in your mid-30s. I'm feeling it. (laughs) That'll never happen. That you will go from strength to strength to strength. That you'll get better and better at what it is that makes you go, oh, I love that. Imagine that. Wouldn't that be a place to be? That's what heaven is going to be like. And to the extent that we lean into and invest the best of what we've been given, it will be multiplied for us in heaven. What you have been given, for those of you that love it, it's not the best of you. It's a clue to the best of you. It's the seed that's going to die. But it's a clue of what will be raised. Now if you are in that camp, you say, you know what, I haven't found that. And what I'm doing for work is draining me. It's not the best of me at all. I don't feel like I even have anything left to find what the best of me is. This is what was on my heart. I'm a big football fan. It's my favorite time of year, the NFL starting. But I love the stories every year because you know what they hate? They hate training camp. And they'd go for like four months lying on the couch, eating whatever they want, they come into training camp, there's always a story is one of their fifty pounds overweight, might not make the squad, and they just get leaned into. Physical discipline, their sleep, they're eating, every hour of the day is accounted for. They're doing two a days. they're throwing up on the practice field, like it's terrible studying playbooks, watching videotape, hours and hours and hours. They hate it. The best athletes, they say they're going to retire every year, and then they come in and start at the beginning of the season so they don't have to go through training camp. And a lot of it is cross-training too, right? A lot of the stuff they're doing, if they're running hills, you don't run hills in a football game. There's real people, but some of what they're doing has nothing to do with its physical conditioning. And I thought, for some of us that have been in that place where we hate our job, what if it's cross-training? There is only hope for that if there is hope in the next life. That what you are doing now is preparing you. It's not the real game. None of them like training camp, but they all love it. The snap of the ball and that left tackle. He gets blown by by a guy who studied harder, trained harder, worked harder, and then they're loving it. Throwing that quarterback to the ground. That's what they they trained for. None of them would do the training if they weren't playing the game. And so maybe... What you need to get a hold of is God has something in eternity for me that is so a fit with who I am that will be worship for him. Yes, I'm going to be in his presence, but that's going to make everything I do even so much better. And what the little things that I love to do now are a clue to something later. And if what's asked of me for 50 hours a week or 60 hour weeks isn't that, I'm going to look at it as cross training and say, God, how do I get better, faster, stronger, so that I can step in when I get there? My prayer for all of us today is that whether work is a joy or a struggle for you, that you would realize that there are good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do in this earth. And if you're, they're hard to find, they may be diamonds in that rough place in your work, that you need to find them. Never stop discovering. And then in the midst of the struggle or complexity at your work, that you know that the God who called you to work also worked in your shoes, so he knows what he's asking you to do. And that all of these things are a clue or a foretaste to the better day that is yet to come. You know, at the very end of that passage in Corinthians, when Paul explains all that the resurrection means, he says, therefore, is this one line, therefore, your work is not in vain. That's what he was making the point. Now, as we close today, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus, not just today, but in the last few sermons and the songs. And you may be one of those people that says, you know, I'm not sure about Jesus. God, okay, I I think I can believe that. But I hear a lot about things about Jesus, and I read all that Jesus Seminar stuff in the Toronto Star, and how do we know the Bible is really true, and all that kind of stuff. What I encourage you that it's worthwhile looking into. There's a program that's run here that we run at our church also. It's called Alpha, and it's really just a way to begin to discover who God is. And and actually, actually, the teacher there, Nikki's main point is that you cannot know God without knowing Jesus. And I'll say this to you because I heard it it's so resonating with me. You're going to see a video testimony in a second, but I'll leave you with this. If you're not sure about Jesus, think about this. Make a list of the top ten most influential people in history. Even if you don't like Jesus, you've got to argue he's in the top three at least. There's nearly two billion people that call him Lord, and the amount of songs that have been written about him far outweigh anyone who's ever had songs written about them. So he's top ten, top 10 easily top three, I think he's number one but wherever you put him on that list now put the list of the people who claim to be god there's only one person on both lists there's only one person on both lists david koresh was on this list you don't have to look into his life we know he was a fraud he killed people there's only one person who you would say yeah probably the top three most influential people of all time he also claimed to be god I'm not saying that proves he was who he said he was, but history alone tells you you can't just say, oh yeah, I read some stuff about him in the paper, I don't think he's the real deal. Come on. If you're really seeking truth, you've got to look into this. And so I invite you to watch this testimony, and then maybe the next step for you is Alpha. How did you first hear about Alpha?
1: Uh, through a friend at work yeah, she recommended it to me because uh, I had a lot of questions about my faith. Good. I wanted to feel more attached, and this love that my friend was speaking about that God had for me, apparently, I didn't really uh, know or understand. So I'd been searching for a long time and and falling in and out of faith um, in my own home church, and uh, had just stopped going for a long time actually and uh, but that that curiousness about God and and whether or not he hears me or sees me or knows me was still existing so um, I think I went to just really kind of find out what it meant to be a Christian. I expected to be a bunch of boring um, well-dressed to-the-collar people (laughs) Bible thumpers that's what I expected. The majority of them were young or Mm. around my age and uh, they were really friendly, everyone was really kind and I didn't feel like I was being sucked into anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it inspired me to um, have more of a passion for those who haven't heard the gospel or have become like I was, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of deadened to it and, and not knowing the full truth of the gospel. So uh, it kind of ignited in me uh, a want to help others in the same way. So. Yeah, now I have this interest in uh, evangelism. I'm going back again and uh, I'm going to help um, lead a group of people at a table, so that's very exciting to me. I didn't think that, that would I would ever be doing that.
0: How do you see yourself differently?
1: Uh, more joyful. Really? Yeah. I feel so much more full of the spirit and it continues every day. If you've ever heard the, the testimony of Brian Welsh, who was the former lead guitarist of Corn, which is a crazy metal band uh, a few years back, and then uh, found Christ, or rather, Christ found him. And then he went crazy in love and uh, fell so hard for Jesus, he started putting scripture all over his body. And um, it was awesome. It was on his neck, it was on his fingers, and that inspired me to think outside of a Christian box and uh, think outside of the rules a little bit. Not outside of the law of God at all. But anyway, that's what inspired me to put Jesus' name on my foot. because I'm crazy in love now.
0: <laughs> what would you tell a person who's considering taking the Alpha course? Good food. Good food? Yep. That's it?
1: No, <laughs> no. I would say that, uh, you know, if you're probably hearing this or seeing this right now, then uh, there might be a pressing on your heart to find out more about your faith or find out more about what it means to really be Christian. It's not boring at all. It's very, it's very thrilling. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's my pleasure to bless you with a with blessing I covet for myself that this week that God would open your eyes to the good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. And if you know what those are, that, that you would lean into those. And if you don't know, that he would make that claim to you. And maybe the way to receive that blessing is to say, God, yeah, I want that for me. And so just go with the blessing of God, the peace of God. And it was, just, uh, it was great to be with you today. God bless.